Dax Hunter was strapped into the seat of his helicopter. The Rhodesian summer heat sweltered like an epic biblical tale. What happens next? Well, let's go ask the author, our guest, on today's Small Business Celebration. This is Small Business Celebration. Join us as we learn from successful business owners and successful business leaders about who they are, from where their business has grown, what they have learned, and where their successful business is going. I'm your host, Michael I. Roberts, and we're going to learn something that you can use today to grow a strong and profitable business. and welcome to Small Business Celebration. And our guest this week is Gary Albin, who's the author of A League of Warriors. Welcome to Small Business Celebration. Thank you, Michael. And for visionaries who don't know who you are, who are you and what is it that you do? My name's Gary Albin. I am a big time author. I am a security consultant, a bodyguard and a bodyguard instructor. Now, you may have guessed that our guest ain't from around these parts. Where are you originally from? I was born in Rhodesia in 1960 and uh, spent the best part of my life in that country. And the country is now Zimbabwe. That is correct. Gained independence uh, in 1980. You started your young adult life in the Rhodesian military. That's correct. As a pilot. What did you fly? So I joined the Rhodesian Air Force in 1978 after leaving high school and uh, spent the first six months ground training school. Then we moved on to an Italian-built aircraft, uh, the C.R. Marchetti. And uh, six months, 110 hours after that, we moved on to medium speed jets. After your tenure in the Rhodesian Air Force, you left and went to South Africa, did you not? That's correct. I, I moved to South Africa. In fact, if I could just go back a month or two, I left Zimbabwe and uh, went across to the UK for a brief holiday. <laughs> we call it a holiday, a vacation. And uh, I was attending the world famous Farnborough Air Show and I happened to bump into a rather uh, dapper old uh, Spitfire pilot from the Second World War. Right. And with the monocle pressed in his, uh, in his eye socket, this dear gentleman told me that I should pursue the same formula as the Americans, and that is to get a degree behind my name before I continued with my, uh, my passion for aviation. Mm. I thought that was sound advice. So when I went back to South Africa, I enrolled in the university and I studied civil engineering. You went into the corporate world? I rose through the corporate ranks, but I was never fulfilled. I didn't find that it was uh, assaging my, my passion, my other passions. Why not? I think I had a yearning to fly all the time. Mm. I was flying privately as a helicopter pilot at that stage, and uh, my weekends were filled with uh, you know, books and learning and flying. And it was, it was fulfilling, but it was, it, was not, uh, it was not a career. Mm. And at some stage, uh, probably 20 years into my, my corporate life, uh, a friend of mine who was, uh, who was working as a civilian contractor in Iraq, of all places, <laughs> contacted me and he said, he's an extradition like myself, and he said, I've just discovered that there's a British company here that's hiring helicopter pilots. Uh, would you be interested? Would you like me to put your name forward? And I, at that stage, had been pursuing 
um, a, a p potential career change into aviation. But of course, I was being stymied by the fact that I was a little long in the tooth <laughs> and, uh, and that I had also, uh, I, I hadn't accumulated sufficient hours to be able to step into a, a pilot in command role. Right. So the opportunity when presented uh, was uh, was for me a no-brainer. My my wife and my, my wife at the time and my family didn't see it that way, but um, the company in Britain said that they would take on uh, this you know, aspirant helicopter pilot um, extradition. But they said that in order to uh, to be able to go and work there and to be able to uh, to to comply with their insurance requirements, I needed to enroll on a bodyguard course of all things <laughs> and in this way they hoped that I would be sufficiently um, retreaded uh, in the military sense to be able to go and uh, and operate in a hostile environment. So let me get this straight in order to fly a helicopter you had to become a bodyguard. That's correct so <laughs> okay. short of sending their potential pilots back into the military which obviously wouldn't happen they couldn't do that right they found the next best thing and uh, they selected this British company selected five uh, bodyguard academies and they gave each and every applicant the option to go to one of those courses so one of the companies that uh, that they had offered or had uh, suggested was in Cape Town I contacted the owner of the company and I said to him, please, will you fax me the questionnaire, the, the, the tests that you've got to do, because I can't afford to spend five weeks on your bodyguard well, you course. Well, were, you were important. You already knew your stuff. That's, I mean, uh, flying a helicopter is a piece of cake. You knew everything, right? It was, it was arrogant. It was really <laughs> arrogant of me. But, uh, but I genuinely thought that, you know, if he sent me the notes, I could study them on a weekend and I could write his test and I could graduate as a bodyguard in a few days. <laughs> he, he scoffed at that, obviously, and uh, I found myself on his course a couple of weeks later, and within three days, I think, uh, maybe less, I was an absolute convert. I realized that there's a lot more to bodyguarding and security than I ever imagined, and uh, forget what you've seen on the movie, uh, The Bodyguard, and so on. It, What's the name of the academy, by the way? It's Ronan. Ronan S.A., one of the finest academies in the world. And you had no idea this was who you were telling that, no, just send me the test notes and I could get this done on a weekend. I, I hadn't <laughs> met him at that stage. Obviously, I met him later and uh, he's never forgotten that conversation. <laughs> so you graduated from the academy and what did that afford you? Well, immediately having acquired the certification, I was accepted and uh, shipped over to Iraq where I spent probably the next seven or eight months as a civilian coalition contractor. You ended up not in Bakersfield, but Visalia of all places. Why Visalia? So my old friend Bruce, who's an extradition, uh -huh. uh, he and I have been friends for, for decades. He had immigrated here to the States um, probably 10 years, maybe more. Uh -huh. And he exhorted me to get on a plane and come and visit him here in a little place called Visalia. And I had no idea where that was. I couldn't even find it on a map. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he told me to fly into Fresno Airport. He picked me up, took me into Visalia. And I think within three days of arriving, he and his wife had introduced me to one of their mutual friends. And uh, that lady to this day is my special wife. And your wife is? Kathy Alban. And she is with Greater Bakersfield Chamber of Commerce. That's correct. Yes, that is right. Now you live in the mountains outside of Bakersfield, yet you still do security work. 
I'm still involved in security, correct? Um, it's, it pays the bills. <laughs> and uh, I'm very fortunate in that having worked at Ronan, having been the senior instructor at the Ronan Bodyguard Academy, uh, it comes with certain credentials, certain kudos. And uh, I was fortunate because one of my American students discovered through social media that I was visiting the States back in uh, 2016. And he contacted me and he said, we've got a big job coming up. There's uh, some very important people that need protection. Are you free and available to come and uh, work on the detail? So I, I got involved there. It was, uh, it was a four-month job. And that was the, uh, the foot in the door, as it were, for um, a somewhat illustrious and interesting career in security in the Hollywood environment. So let me get this straight. <clears throat> Born and raised in Rhodesia, was in the military, went to South Africa to become a civil engineer, went to England, came, was about to go back to civil engineering, was in the corporate world, was upset about being in the corporate world, decided to become a contractor in the Middle East, see combat, and then end up back in, end up in Visalia. Correct? Correct. That's absolutely <laughs> correct. Okay, just wanted to make sure I get this straight. And yet, the most important part of this whole story is how you got your green card. So it was apparent very soon. It was, it was soon apparent that uh, Kathy and I had a future. We uh, we were in a committed uh, relationship, and we set a date. We got married, but of course, I was here as a visitor on a B one visa, and I couldn't risk uh, incurring the wrath of the American authorities by by getting work. So in that period, while my paperwork had been submitted for a green card. I said to, to Kathy one day, I said, you know what, I'm going to use the time since I can't work in the, uh, in the traditional sense. I'm going to use the time to write a book. And I think she might have patted me condescendingly on the head, <laughs> not realizing. That's nice, dear. <laughs> Everybody wants to write a book. <laughs> not realizing that uh, I think in my heart for a long time, I, I felt as if I had a novel um, buried somewhere deep there. Based on previous success as the, the author of a, um, a, a non-fiction book in South Africa, which was modestly successful, I thought I had it in me to, uh, to embark on this project. And seven, seven months later, I finished A League of Warriors. And just in time for Christmas, A League of Warriors, by our guests, which you can find here at Russo's Books. And just in time for Christmas, for that last-minute Christmas gift, and the author really does know what he's talking about. And if Visionary Nation wants to get in touch with you, how do they do that? I can be reached on uh, my website, garyalban.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, Gary Alban Author, or just Gary Alban. If you like Small Business Celebration, go ahead and like, subscribe, and notify and leave a comment. We love the comments that come from you visioners who want to learn more about what we have to offer, the people that we can learn from, the people, the subjects that we want to learn from, and your questions which do get answered here on Small Business Celebration. And when we come back, we're going to learn in the great world of publishing, do you go ahead and self-publish or is it better to have a publisher do it for you when we come right back? Any business can benefit from their employees' participation in Toastmasters. They will develop confident and competent public speaking skills. 
These foundational skills will aid them in communicating with customers, with coworkers, management, the media, and even in relationships. Join us, learn to speak with confidence, engage your audience, and make your message stand out. Build a better you. Go to Toastmasters.org and click on the Find a Club button and build a better you. Go to Toastmasters.org and click on the Find a Club button and build a better you so that you can grow a strong and profitable business. Go to Toastmasters.org, click on the Find a Club button and build a better you. We're here with Gary Album, the author of League of Warriors. The reason we have an author on today is because, believe it or not, there's a business behind the world of book publishing. And the, Gary is uniquely situated to answer a very important question from Visioner Elisa who asks, I've written a manuscript that I want to have published. Should I self-publish or go the traditional route and find a publisher? Michael, million dollar question. <laughs> the, if you don't mind, I'll give it a little self-plug. Self-plug, exactly. <laughs> go ahead. You have gone both routes of publishing, both self-publishing and through a traditional publisher. What are some of the advantages of self-publishing? Michael, when I first got to America, uh, based or with the success of, of Manzovo back in South Africa, I was under the impression that it would be a shoo-in to find similarly, uh, or, or to find a, uh, a similarly enthusiastic publisher here in the States. Right. That wasn't as easy as I thought. This is a massive market. I never realized how large the American book market was. Coming from a country where, sadly, we have probably one of the highest rates of illiteracy in the world. Mm. And uh, book sales are measured in the thousands, not in the millions. And if you make a few thousand, you automatically become a bestseller, right. which is, you know, on the grand, in the grand scheme of things, on the grand scale of, uh, you know, comparing to the UK or the American book market is, is minuscule. So I came here with a, um, a bit of a false expectation mm. uh, of the, the likelihood of being able to, to find a publisher here. So very quickly realizing that a whole new world has opened up for authors through Amazon, the likes of Amazon, self-publishing, where you can actually uh, put together a book, depending on how detailed it is or how much effort you put into it, you can bring a book to market within you know, a couple of weeks. As I say, a, a small reference book, there's no reason why it shouldn't take you, you know, more than that, longer than that. I, uh, I quickly discovered that Amazon, while it's not exactly paint by numbers, it's as good as a, uh, a leading you by the nose through the process. They, right. They've made it as simple as possible. Obviously, they want as many books published as possible for the revenue. Right. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that every author is going to sell thousands and thousands of copies. But for the dedicated author who's prepared to push and to market him or herself, there, there is potential. Right. So the, the, the expectation, I think, with a lot of authors is that they want to hand their manuscript over. They want to receive a phone call to say, you're the next best thing and your book will be published and we'll have it on the shelves. They'll be flying off the shelves in the next couple of weeks. 
you then think to yourself that uh, you can sit back and reap the rewards and become a millionaire <laughs> and buy a yacht. However, even with the published author, they're going to expect you to make appearances, book signings, appearances, TV shows, radio shows. Uh, is this, now this is for Amazon, because the same is also true with the traditional publisher, is it not? Correct. So, so the traditional publisher has this expectation that you are going to help yourself along the way, right. help their marketing effort. What Amazon does is they say, we'll give you the book, we'll give you your book. So we will, uh, we will reproduce it in exactly the same format as you've given us. And if you've spent time and you've had an editor, a copy editor, a book design, a cover designer do the work for you, your end product can be potentially as good a copy as anything that's going to come off the press of a publisher. And I think you just illustrated a very important point. As a self-published author, not only do you have to write the, the original content, you need to find the editor, you need to find the artist, you need to find the marketing arm. You have to do everything yourself. Correct. Whereas a publishing house, that's different because possibly, even though they're going to expect you to do some of the promotional marketing, they're going to take care of everything else, correct? That's right. So the traditional publisher will basically phone up your agent or the publisher themselves will phone up and say, you need to appear at Russo's bookstore or at a, a mall signing copies. Uh, they lead you by the hand. Right. Whereas a self-publisher, you've got to get up off your behind and do all of that yourself. You've got to become a marketer. Right. So you have this aspiration to write, you spend all the time and effort writing, you produce the book, and you sit back thinking that it's going to fly off the, uh, the, the, the virtual Amazon store. It's not. You need to put in as much, if not more effort, mm. as a marketer of your own product. And that's where the difference, I think the subtle difference between the two, is that it's probably harder to self-publish. And yet, Amazon takes a 30% cut. Is that about right? 30, 35% cut of the sales? Whereas a traditional publisher will take 60, 60 70. to 70%, correct. And that's because they're absorbing a lot more of the costs and the risks involved. What is the financial turnaround difference too? Because as I understand it, there's a 30-day turnaround, 60-day turnaround with self-publishing on what you produce and sell. Whereas with a traditional publisher, I've heard and correct me if I'm wrong, a year or two or certain quantities have to be met before royalties. How does, what's been your experience with that? Every publisher will have a different formula. They'll apply a different set of uh, formulae to the, uh, the, the generation of your, your, your expected income, your mm. royalties. Uh, typically, as you say, they'll take 60 to 70 percent. Your 30% or less after they've deducted tax is only going to start accruing once you've reached a level or because of the way that it goes through the system, all the in-betweeners and the, uh, the, the buyers and the, the, you know, the storage houses and the clearing houses and the, eventually the seller themselves, uh, the, the storefront, there's a cut that needs to be taken all along the way. Mm. So the calculation uh, filters through these, uh, you know, myriad of, of formula before you, you eventually get your first check. And that could be, as you mentioned, six to seven months down the line. Mm. What life lessons or what lesson have you learned 
through this process that affects the decisions you make today. I think it took me a long time to realize that the first book in the Dax Hunter series, but if I could just refer to it as a, as a work of faction, uh, here in America, the, uh, the public publishing industry would refer to it as historical fiction. Right. Back in the UK, where I had originally started uh, exploring the, the, the opportunity to publish there, uh, publishers told me, no, it's a work of faction, a portmanteau word combining fact and fiction. And I think that's a beautiful word. It's, uh, it's, uh, it captures the essence of my book. So the story, and I'll get back to your, your question in a moment, the story is historically accurate with fictitious characters woven into it. And I've had readers contact me to say, you know, there were parts of history that I remember, bits that I learned a lot about, but there were certain incidents, like that incident in the Panama Canal. When did that really happen? And of course I had to chuckle because that's, that's now the, um, that was a true, I think, a feather in my cap, the ability to weave in uh, a story with a lot of historical fact and convince my audience that this might have actually been true. Right. But um, getting back to your question, the, the story, the Dax Hunter story, A League of Warriors, I don't think I could have written that 20 years ago, 30 years ago when I was an aspirant author, even 10 years ago, because a lot of that is, dare I say it, almost autobiographical. Dax Hunter is not me. He's a composite character made up of uh, the virtues of a lot of people I know. Uh, a little bit of me, yes, but definitely not me. And the lesson for me has been one of, I think, patience. Mm. Uh, this was a book that came at the right time. I could never have written that with the authenticity of somebody who hadn't been in Iraq, in a war zone, in a bush war in Rhodesia. Um, the senior instructor at one of the finest bodyguard academies in the world where these kind of martial skills are being taught and trained on a daily basis. They all make you know, virtual appearances in the book. Right time, in the right place, with the right product. Correct. And we'll be right back. With Christmas literally right around the corner, I want to take a moment and thank you, Visioner Nation, for all the great insight and ideas and questions that you have afforded us on social media, on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Your insights that you have given us, the questions that you have given us are being answered by real guests here on the show, and we couldn't do it without you. So from our family to yours, thank you very much Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, and reach out to us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, and Merry Christmas. We're here with Gary Alban, the author of A League of Warriors, and Visioneer Enrique asks, I have a lot of life stories and business stories I want to teach. Should I write fiction or nonfiction? The giveaway for me there, Michael, was in the first part of his question. He says that he's got experience in both camps, mm. fiction and nonfiction. Uh, I would say if you're starting out, stick with what, you're, what you know best. Mm. 
I would like to think that I've heeded that advice because I too have branched into both fiction mm -hmm. and nonfiction, right. uh, but not after first kind of uh, dipping a toe and, and, and earning my spurs as it were in the one mm -hmm. before crossing over into sure. the other. Uh, but do what you do best and, uh, and, and soul search, find out, you know, ask yourself those probing questions, which one of the two of, of, those, uh, of those two categories am I best at? Uh, mm. Would I best fulfill the reader's expectation if I produce a book in that category? What authors or author has been the most influence on you and your writing? Without hesitation, I'm going to say Wilbur Smith. Very Who is famous. Wilbur Smith? Wilbur Smith is a, like me, comes from uh, Central Africa. He was mm -hmm. uh, from Rhodesia. And uh, he, he first started writing in the 60s. I think his first book, When the Lion Feeds, came out in the late 60s, maybe early 70s. And it was, um, it was epic. It was a sweeping African drama um, with, you know, with all the, uh, the intrigues of court, uh, inter-family feuds, but the, the throb of, of, of the African drum, as it were, uh, the throb of the continent coming through very strongly. And it appealed to a very wide audience, when I say wide, the European audience, uh, African audience, and of course, um, Australia, Far East as well. Uh, never, although he's fairly big in the States now, never quite made it uh, to the same level here in the States. Uh, but that's not to say that he is an iconic writer in, in, a, you know, in, the, in the stratosphere of, of writers. He's up there with the best. What is something that new publishers need to watch out for, or new authors, excuse me, need to watch out for on the business side? The important thing to remember when you're self-publishing is that none of the work is done for you once you've finished the book. You've done all the work writing the book. But thereafter, the hard work is only just about to begin. Right. And it's important that the writer puts himself in the right frame of mind for the task at hand. Mm. And that is to actively, aggressively, shamelessly publish and promote and push your book through every, every channel available to you. How did you learn that? How did I learn that? Yeah. Um, when I saw that sales were starting to dip after the initial flurry, so I put in a lot of effort using um, social media. Um, I, you know, I, I exhorted friends to buy copies of the book. I went on to uh, the various uh, groups that I belong to on Facebook that are germane to, you know, to the topic that I wrote about. And of course, you quickly exhaust those avenues. You now have to reach new readers, new audiences, right. and that takes uh, some marketing nows, uh, mm. reaching deeper into your, you know, your network or reaching into new networks, mm. pushing into new networks. Uh, and the thing is, it's a quest. You can't ever relax. You can't ever fall back on your laurels. And that was a lesson for me, was seeing the dip in sales and realizing that I had to energize that right. by, by getting back in there and, and you know, putting my face, or if not my face, then at least the, the cover of the book, in people's faces sure. and making sure that they're aware that there is a book out there and hopefully one worth reading. On the publishing side, since you went to a traditional publisher, what is something that a new author needs to watch out for when dealing with a traditional publisher? A new author 
often will be overwhelmed by the the novelty of what they've achieved their first book it's their first it's their firstborn in uh, in in, a, in in the broader sense and since they've invested so much and since they have such a uh, such an expectation for the success of that book uh, they often I was partially guilty of this as well they often abdicate their own involvement in the promotion of that book mm. um, and in the little things like the layout of the book mm. I was so overawed um, so overjoyed by uh, by the fact that my book was going to be published that I abdicated much of that responsibility to somebody who they may have had their best my best interests at heart but they didn't have the vision that I had mm. and thereby they they weren't able to recreate exactly you know what I wanted to best showcase the work and the illustrations by Craig Bone contracts in the world of publishing contracts are often the bane of a author's existence what has your experience been like in dealing with a contract and did you have an attorney look at your contract before you signed it or what were some of those pitfalls or some of those experiences that you had? Uh, having had 20 to 30 years experience in the corporate environment mm -hmm. uh, I was pretty well versed with the uh, the subtleties, the challenges, the nuances of a, uh, a poorly crafted contract mm. so I, I went through mine with a fine tooth comb mm. there were still things that didn't quite register some of the jargon was a little overwhelming and once again the overarching uh, emotion at that time was just one of deep relief that somebody was going to publish your book <laughs> so it it is easy to fall into that trap right. of uh, of not carefully analyzing everything the subtleties of what they're actually saying about the movie rights that are going to come when you know when you hit the big time how much you're going to get from that right. you know what control you might have over uh, the, the creation of your you know the, of your genius once it's uh, you know it's it's brought to the big screen things like that need to be hammered out and my best advice would be call your favorite lawyer and ask him to have a look at it what gets you up every morning and go right? Every now and again, you'll get a response from a reader, a satisfied reader, that gives you encouragement, gives you hope. They tell you that they can't wait for the next book. And while we could all do with lots and lots of accolades coming in on a daily basis to motivate us to you know to keep us uh, inspired in that in that regard in that sense it's those little things because they are reasonably infrequent they're the little things that tend to motivate mm. and what what kicks me out of bed in the morning is knowing that i i almost have an obligation on duty bound to uh, to create something that they are looking forward to that they want to read it's inspirational and if visionaries want to get in touch with you how do they do that i can be contacted uh, via email which is gary alban at hotmail.co.uk that's a legacy of my time in the united kingdom uh, my uh, my website address is garyalban.com gary 
This has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for being on Small Business Celebration and Merry Christmas. Thank you and to you too and your family as well. Any business can benefit from their employees' participation in Toastmasters. They will develop confident and competent public speaking skills. These foundational skills will aid them in communicating with customers, with coworkers, management, the media, and even in relationships. Join us, learn to speak with confidence, engage your audience, and make your message stand out. Build a better you. Go to Toastmasters.org and click on the Find a Club button and build a better you. Go to Toastmasters.org and click on the Find a Club button and build a better you so that you can grow a strong and profitable business. Go to Toastmasters.org, click on the Find a Club button and build a better you. Who is a visioneer? A visioneer is a small business leader who is a pioneer that has vision. A visioneer is someone willing to see the world not as it is, but as it could be, and is willing to do something about it. A visioneer is ethical, smarter, faster, and leaner than the mainstream competition. A visioneer gives value first because visioneers are in business for the long haul. Visioneers understand the difference between saving money and earning a profit. Visioneers define their destiny. Visioneers create their own luck. Visioneers surround themselves with successful, like-minded people. Visioneers are renegades who defy the mainstream competition and are ready to change the world. Are you a visioneer? Join the visioneer tribe at Small Business Celebration on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram today. Thank you for listening to the Small Business Celebration podcast. Some of today's music was brought to you by Ted Hammond, and you might find more of Ted's music at ReverbNation.com forward slash Ted Hammond. That's ReverbNation.com forward slash Ted Hammond. If you enjoyed this episode and gained some insight from it for your business, subscribe to the Small Business Celebration podcast at iTunes.com forward slash Small Business Celebration and give us a five-star review. Also, if there's a business you'd like us to interview, reach out to us on LinkedIn and Facebook and let us know. Until next time, I'm your host, Michael Roberts of the Small Business Celebration podcast, and we wish you a strong and profitable business.